Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. All right, we're going to be reading from Ephesians 4, starting in chapter 11. It was he who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that is, to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature. So we are no longer to be children tossed back and forth by the waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. But practicing the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ, who is the head. From him, the body grows, fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in love. Thank you, Brett. We're in this series called House Church, as Bucky said, and this passage from Ephesians 4 is a pretty big deal. There is some instruction for us in this passage about how we organize ourselves as a church. It even points to the whole purpose of the church. You could almost kind of reduce to one or two verses from this one passage. It's powerful stuff, and it has impact for our house church. If you want to build a home that's a faith-filled home, so much of that is who you bring in, isn't it? the friends that we welcome in, the guests that we have in our home. And if you have kids, so often those guests are your little kids' friends, the little neighbor kids, you know, like this sweet neighbor kid that I have. He's about a five-year-old boy, and uh, recently we're moved to this neighborhood. And, uh, you know, he likes to have these outbursts of just yelling, random outbursts of yelling, uh, just out of just simple boyhood energy, I suppose. And uh, I was like, wow, that's interesting. And then a couple of days later, what happens? But my four-year-old son tries the same thing on me, when I'm kind of squaring up with him, trying to get eyeball to eyeball, and just like this random outburst, like a yell, just in my face, and I thought, oh, that's not going to last long. No, we're not going to have that. But it made me think of what our big idea is really this morning as we look at this idea of, of Christian friendship. There's so much here about unity, but Christian friendship is really a question of influence, For my son, my little four-year-old boy who was around this five-year-old boy, it was so clear that the influence of this neighborhood kid had become now the evidence. There was evidence of who he'd been hanging around, who he was with, rubbed off on him. The influence becomes the evidence. And the same is true in our Christian friendship and in our friendship with those that are outside the church who have yet to build a relationship with Jesus. It's a critical question. How do we keep the unity of Christian friendship? In Ephesians, is this wonderful study. Paul writes this letter in the first century to, to brand new believers. They're, they're Gentiles. They didn't come from a Jewish tradition, so they didn't have a reference for the God of the Bible. They were completely secular, cultural, what the Bible would call um, you know, pagan or heathen or, or, or Gentile. They, they had no reference point. And he's building this church saying, when you say yes to Jesus, you've been given a unity. You have unity already. You don't have to manufacture it. But all these things creep in. They, all, they creep into our community of friends, of Christian friendship, like self, love of self, love of stuff. 
dishonesty, lack of love, these things creep in and threaten to affect our Christian friendship, to affect our unity that Paul is talking about here in chapter, five, chapter four. So how do we battle that? How do we battle the constant onslaught and siege of, of, of lack of love, of dishonesty, of self in terms of our Christian friendship? And, and what does Paul show us through chapter four, starting in verse 11? Well, he spells it out for us. So if you don't have your Bible out, get it out right now. Uh, grab your Bible app. I'm going to be in the New English translation, the NET version of the Bible. We're in chapter 4, verse 11, and this is what it says. It was he, that is Jesus, who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Hmm. Stop right there for a second. What's he talking about? He's talking about spiritual gifts. Some of you heard this before, but I want to lean into it. I'm going to give you a bio. I'm going to give you a bio of these five spiritual gifts. I'm not talking about talents or abilities. This is not a song and dance thing. These are spiritual gifts that are given to us when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. And I want to go through each five of them that are imparted to you and to me, to all of us. Each one of us has maybe one or even maybe two of these which we see the world through that lens. And it's critical It's critical for our Christian influence to hear this, to be aware of these, and to be growing in these. So the first one is apostle. If you're taking notes, like you should be taking notes for this section. That's what I'll say right now, okay? If you like, especially if you like personality tests or like assessments or like strengths finder, you know, all those different things, you should take some notes because you're going to find yourself squarely in one of these gifts today, all right? Apostle, literally one who is sent with a commission. That's what the, the original Greek word means. Literally one who is sent with a commission. These are foundation uh, layers, layers, lay, comma, earth. Foundation layers. They're pioneers or innovators. The, the French word for this, if you're reading this, the Bible in French, is envoy, a special envoy. You know, they're sent. Think about that for yourself. There's apostles in the room this morning. The prophet, these are word mediators. They have such a high view and passion for God's word that they're, they're kind of a go-between in that way, constantly challenging us to embrace God's word in a more profound and deep way. If you, if you have a reference point for the prophetic gifting, uh, odds are there's, it's a mix. It's a hodgepodge of, of how sometimes it's maybe been abused or, or neglected uh, or maybe over-highlighted. I give you one really simple reference if you want to know more. It comes from 1 Corinthians 14.3. It says that the gift is given for edification, encouragement, and consolation. Edification, keeping stuff in line and honoring God's word, like I said before. Encouragement and consolation. Those who are broken and hurting. Okay, that sounds like building up. That sounds like encouragement to me. So if you have doomsday prophets, something's not right there. Okay. Potentially. You know, the street sign, the corner prophet who's tearing down and, and ripping apart. I don't know about that. That's not what I read in scripture. It's not always foretelling, like, oh, I'm going to spell out the future for you perfectly. When we hear that word prophet, we're not sure. Look at that. Encouraging. High view of scripture. There are prophetic gifted people in the room this morning. Evangelists. Bearers of good news. They like to travel and preach to the lost. They're recruiters. They're able to rally and create buy-in. I hear a recruiter in the back laughing over here. They're persuaders. They're great at negotiation. Social connectors. High emotional intelligence. You know, like me. Why are you guys laughing? I'm claiming that one. I'm going to claim it. You guys need to claim it too. There's evangelists in the room. There's teachers. It says teacher, and we think, oh man, I'm just going to wipe that off. That's not even close to me. Well, guess what? Teacher doesn't always mean this flawless communicator. A teacher is, is possessed with the idea of putting ideas into action. A teacher has a high view of comprehension. You know, that we've made the head-to-heart connection. 
A teacher is all about that work. And then finally, pastor. The most synonymous term, they're often interchangeable depending on what Bible you're looking at, with the word shepherd. So what do shepherds do? Shepherds are defenders, they're protectors, healers. They foster high levels of comfort and trust. Bucky and I believe that Watermark, God's calling Watermark to be a safe place of rescue and protection and guarding of those who are maybe hurt out there in the world or hurt by the church. There are shepherds right here. Maybe there's shepherds over here in this section. Okay, maybe not this section, but shepherds over here. And then there's some prophetic over here. And there's some that have an apostolic gifting over here in this room. What does that mean, you guys, for Christian friendship? It means that we are called to build into one another, to see that gifting, affirm that gifting, and grow in that gifting. That is a powerful influence. What could happen in our influence? How might our influence become evidence if we were alive in our gifting, our God-breathed gifting, we might have a flourishing discipleship. People that were students of Jesus Christ and they looked like it in word, thought, action. A flourishing discipleship. If we had people living in their giftings, that would be evidence of our influence. We'd have a flourishing church so that when we have an evangelist here who goes out and invites someone, guess what? They feel safe coming into this place. Not just safe, but they say, man, that is a beautiful thing that is happening there. I have so many questions, and I don't understand half of what the pastor said, but there's something beautiful happening there. That would be evidence of us living into our giftings. And we would have a flourishing movement. We would be taking new ground for the kingdom, for God's purposes in the world. That his will would be done, it would be moving forward and advancing. That would be the evidence of our influence. Paul says, we are each wired up with one of these giftings but we need to live into it. They're not theoretical. That's what I would say about the giftings, okay? Get this. Paul uses another word, so awesome, that proves they're not theoretical. It's not just, oh, hey, I got my results on the score, and I'm going to shove it away in a file one day, and then if someone asks what's your spiritual gift, I can cite it. No, they're not theoretical. They're meant to be put into practice. Look at verse 12. It says, To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that is, to build up the body of Christ. Okay, so again, just to highlight how critical this is, if you're new or maybe it's been a while, this is a a reminder for for the reason in which the church exists and why church leadership, why even organize ourselves? So that we can call each other to greater depths and levels of service. But there's a couple Greek words here, like I said, that are really, really important. The first one, for equip, the original language, you know, it was written in Greek. The original language, that word equip is katartismon. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna call it kamon. We're going to call it Kamon, because I'm going to struggle with that word if I try and say it one more time in its full length. Say Kamon. No, no, y- y'all get to say it. Say Kamon. Kamon, that's what I'm talking about. When we see equip, we think, oh, it's, we should train one another, and that's good. We're just supposed to build each other up and you know, give, give a seminar and give lessons. No, this word is so much deeper than that. Kamon, it's used elsewhere in the Bible for a broken limb, for mending a broken limb. It's used elsewhere in the Bible for repairing broken nets. Remember what I said about unity? We're given this unity when we come to faith and yet the things that infiltrate it and break it, our job as Christian friends is to maintain and protect that unity from breakage. Kamon. Kamon speaks to that. It's also used for, for division politically, even in the first century. Can anyone say government shutdown? Yeah, we don't know how to get along. We don't know how to get along. Even inside the church, we don't know how to get along. How is that going to be a beautiful picture for those who are coming in and checking it out? Came on, speaks to repairing our Christian friendship, 
Our influence will become the evidence when there is tremendous unity. That's what it means in Christian friendship. But that's not all. That's not all. And it's not just a pastor. It's not just a pastor who's calling us into greater depths and levels of service. And hey, get up here and come volunteer. It's not just a pastor. It's one another. As a body, as a community, we call each other into those depths and those levels of practice. Practice, that's the second word. Uh, diakonia, when it says works of service, or it says ministry, the work of the ministry. Diakonia, diakonia is this beautiful word. The best way to translate it, you want to know what it is? Practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. That's what it means. It means you don't have to be a spectator sport in this thing called Christian community, Christian fellowship. You get in the game. And practice will make perfect. And you're thinking, well, Ben, I got a problem with perfect because how are we ever going to be really perfect? Uh, Maybe we could just strive for pretty good or slightly above average. I love that there's a cultural term, practice makes perfect, because when perfect's talked about in the Bible, you know, there's a verse, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you hear that verse and you're like, (laughs) next verse, let's just keep going because that's never going to be me. That's because we miss the meaning of the word perfect. It means whole. It means complete. Like our Father in heaven is. He's lacking in nothing. He's missing nothing. But we have to, how can we get there? How can we experience that? How can we know that to be true? We get in the game. Practice makes perfect, Paul's saying, for the work of service and the works of the ministry. It's not the aim, you guys. A couple quick qualifiers. It's not the aim of church leadership to ensure that you live nice, respectable, comfortable lives. It is the aim and the hope and the mission of of church leadership. We're going to build up into each other, but for a second I'm going to talk about church leadership. The aim is to make sure you lean radically into the service of the global church, just like Christ did as he gave his life up for it. That's what we're going to do. That will be the evidence. What will be the evidence of our influence? What will be the evidence of our Christian friendship? When we are calling each other in a greater depths of service, of practice, and we see that all the time, I can just tell you. As staff people, we see all the time, man, I'm not there yet, man, I'm not ready yet, man, I'm still wounded, man, I'm not, I'm not equipped. You know how the quickest way to find out if you are or not? To practice, to test it, to try it out. And I see Paul suggesting that by using that word, diakonia. It's beautiful. Repairing and practicing. These will be the great evidences of our friendship, of our Christian friendship, of our Christian community. Repairing and practicing what we're trying to maintain. What else? What else can we say about evidence? Well, well, evidence by its very nature can be measured, can it? Evidence is something that's pretty tangible. It's something that we can measure. Well, what does Paul say? Let's look into the next verse. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person, attaining to the what? Would you give it one more try? Attaining to the what? One more time, just for good measure. Attaining to the what? Yeah, cool. The measure of Christ's full stature. Some of us this morning have a problem with numbers. We have a problem with numbers. I'm not talking mathematically, because I'd be the first to raise my hand and say, that's true. Your boy needs the calculator on the phone to get any kind of simple math done. And it's going to be simple math. Nothing more complex past that. I'm not talking about that kind of numbers, am I? talking about numbers inside the church. I'm talking about anytime we talk about spirituality and numbers, we have a problem. And listen, I, I get it. Why do we have a problem? Well, for very good reason. Numbers have been abused. They've been abused in the church. 
They've been abused in the church, just like leadership has been abused in the church, just like authority has been abused in the church, just like scripture has been abused in the church. Yeah, for sure. And therefore, our influence has been abused. But does that mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater? With numbers? In terms of numbers, we throw the baby out with the bathwater? Okay, I have no idea where that, that term comes from. Okay, and I, again, didn't take the time to research it. But pretty much, if someone asks you that, the answer is always no, no. I've got a couple kids at home, and, I, and I've had situations where they've sullied the bath. I'll just put it that way. And what do you do? You just get the stinking kid out of there, and you drain it, and then you put them, you wash maybe a little bit, you scrub the tub a little bit, and then you put them back in. You never throw the kid out. I'm not ready to throw out my kids, okay? No. Just because it's been sullied and abused doesn't mean we throw it away. There's so much health, you guys, to numbers. Some of us, some of us this morning had a problem taking a survey. I, I get it. I get it. We have an issue. You know, like, oh, the church is asking me how much I give. Classic, typical church. Wants to know how much I'm tithing right now. Classic. Well, listen, just to be so candid for a second, okay? If you can tell me, if you can tell me a greater measure of someone growing in trust and growing in maturity than someone who's willing to give away half of all they own for the great and big and huge purposes of God in the world, then please send me an email. I'm not kidding. Send me an email today, and whatever your feedback is, it's going to be in the feedback. It's going to be in the survey next year. I will make sure it's in the survey next year. If you can show me, if you can help me understand what's a beautiful measure of someone tr- growing in trust. By the way, hint, hint, that's the whole point of this deal, guys, is we grow in trust with the Father. We grow in trust. It's growing in maturity to trust Him with our stuff that's most precious to us. But numbers can help. Like I said earlier, numbers are not just an end. They're not an end in and of themselves. I think that's why partially we have this paranoia when the guys up here say, hey, go ahead and take this survey. We're like, if I circle that, it's going to define my whole life. And if I explain it that way, that's going to be a period. And my whole life is going to be summed up in this one measure. No, no. The survey feedback is not an end. It's a means. Let me give you a little bit better example of what I'm talking about. Let's say, for example, the national church metric, if you look at just, the, just even the United States church, if it shows us that on average 50% of people, churchgoers, 50% of people are volunteering, and 50% of people are in a community group or a Bible study, and 50% of churchgoers give 2% of their income, is the first thing I'm going to do is say, sweet, right average, we're just right on par Let's close the doors, let's pack up, let's go. We don't need to meet anymore because we've reached average because we're just nailing that sweet middle spot. No, that's not the first thing I'm going to do. But what we will do as a leadership, Bucky talked about, it's not just two staff people in a silo, with some volunteer leaders, we're going to go away and we're going to ask the question, what is this pointing us to? We're going to say, man, what do we need to do differently so that we might flourish, so that our people could have a better chance at flourishing? There might be a greater depth of evidence of our influence and our influence on one another. We're going to ask that question. That's going to be the first thing that we do. But since we're on measures, I'm going to drill even deeper, okay? I'm going to drill even deeper because some people hate statistics still. And I get it. Y'all going to be jaded on stats? Fine. I'm going to use the ultimate trump card and quote Jesus, okay? So just hang out for a second. Verse 13. What's he doing in verse 13? Measure. This is classic Paul. This is classic Paul. Be conformed. What does it say? The measure of Christ's full stature. 
Be conformed. Paul's always talking about this. If you want, you want to know what your purpose is for your life, you want to know what you should do, you should work on being conformed to the likeness and image and ways of Jesus. Okay, but there's a really, really fun experiment here because to be conformed to something which we don't know is a challenge. Let me ask it one more time. How are we to be conformed to the likeness of that which we don't know? How can we be conformed to the likeness of that which we don't know? Here's a really, really, here's a really, really fun test, okay? This is what you can do. This is a research experiment. All you have to do is go on the internet, go to the internet and just, just type this in. Least favorite sayings of Jesus. Just type in there, least favorite sayings of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to break the internet. It doesn't exist. It doesn't, not even like a close, you know, uh, analogy. Not like most challenging or man, I struggle with these or man, these are really gnarly. No, it doesn't exist. And yet, so that didn't help me, by the way. I was looking for what are those verses that we're often neglecting, the verses we wish Jesus never said that are a challenge to us and our Christian friendship. Because remember, we're going to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. How can we do that if we're not familiar with his answers, with his questions, with his words, with his responses in the Gospels? How can we do that? How can we be conformed to that which we don't know? So look at this, for example. This is one of our ones that we kind of maybe wish Jesus never would have talked about, and it is from Matthew 10. This is what he said, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I don't know why it doesn't talk about sons-in-law, but anyways, it's not about me today. Uh, Verse 36. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. What? Huh? Huh? Ben, I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. Dude, I thought this was a house church series about the family unity. How are we not just going to be in tough conflict with our in-laws and our brothers and our sisters, but to the point of death? A sword? I thought Jesus was a peace-loving hippie. A sword? What is he after? What is Jesus talking about? And, and, and you're thinking, Ben, he's never going to tie this back in. Just look at how this has something to do with our Christian friendship, with our influence. Look at this for a second. It would be a total contradiction if Jesus was advocating physical violence. So that's your first cue. If you read something like that and you're not sure, drill a little deeper. He's not advocating for physical violence. What he's suggesting is, is that if you go all in with me, if you go all in with your life towards the will and way and words of Jesus, there is going to be a natural schism in your relationships. There may be some upheaval some social and relational wedges that are caused some friction because you lived a certain way. Jesus entered your life and now you're radically different. I see it happen all the time. There's a young uh, gal who was a volunteer in the youth ministry and uh, she came to faith in Jesus and her roommate said, you have to leave. She was kicked out by her three or four, you know, Arizona State roommates. Kicked out. That is the exact picture of what Jesus is talking about. And sometimes that happens, and that's an evidence of Jesus' influence in your life. If you begin to take his words in his life seriously, and you're spending time with him in that way, that's the measure. That's the evidence of Jesus' influence in your life. You want to know if you have a, a, a true Christian friend? You want to know if you have a Christian friend? A Christian friend will ask not, hey, what have you done recently? And um, uh, who have you been with recently? And, and, and where are you going next? No, no, a, a friend a true Christian friend, a friend for life is someone who says, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Are you becoming 
more and more and more like Jesus because of the time that you spent with him. Now, we talked about unity. We talked about these things that want to, you know, subvert and intrude and rip apart this unity, this Christian friendship. What are those things? What is Paul talking about? Look at verse 14. That's what he says in verse 14. So we are no longer to be children tossed back and forth by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching, by the trickery of people who craftily carry out their deceitful schemes. This is how I teach friendship to teenagers. You want to know? Because it's so good. It still works. It still plays for us as grown-ups. This is how I teach it to teenagers. There's two different kinds of, well, we use circles. That's how we teach it to teenagers. We use circles. There's the inner circle. And these are those friends, those people in our lives who influence us. They influence us. The whole rest of the circle is the whole rest of the world. And those, who, those are the people who we influence. Do we know the difference? Do we? I don't care what age we are. are do we know the difference between those two groups? Those we truly let into our inner, inner circle who are sharpening us, refining us, speaking influence into us and all other groups. When you're in those two groups... When you're in those two groups, does your maturity, we talked about in verse 13, does your maturity show through? You know, do you sound different? When everyone else, all the guys are talking about their status and their acclaim and their accumulation, do you sound any different or do you jump in? Do, do, we, do we act any different? Do we act any different when, when they're drinking too much, when they're, when, they're, when they're talking badly about their other friends or putting their spouse down? Do we, do we sound or act any differently in those moments? Because that will tell us a lot about our maturity in terms of the influence. That will tell us a lot. We have to know the difference. And I'll tell you, so often it's not just our private moments of hanging out with these friends or those who we're trying to influence. So often it's just even in the four walls of the church. Yeah, when you leave this place. But there's there's a way that the gospel has been infiltrated by culture. And there's one specific way where I think we need to watch out for the trickery and teaching of this world. And that is our high, high view for individualism and autonomy. And I know you're already thinking, oh, individualism, the I word, got it. Yeah, we're gonna go there next. We've heard it before. This is such a critical issue, you guys. It is no longer just them out there, the consumers, the people outside the church. Inside the church, we think that we can just be an island. We think we deserve all the freedom and all the right and all the privilege of just going solo. We can do it on our own. We're strong enough to just go solo and be the lone ranger. And it's because of this high, insanely high view of autonomy that's been bred in culture and now is even inside the church. I'll tell you what a massive issue that we have with this. You see it all the time. But I was at this um, interfaith luncheon last week. So I was, you know, some Mormons there, some Christians there, some Muslims there. Uh, and of course, it was hosted at a Unitarian Universalist church. Uh, UU, as I found out. That's how they refer to themselves, UU, okay? And so they were the hosts, and, and the one gal was the moderator representing the UU, Universalist, you know, church organization. And we have such a high para- paranoid view of personal autonomy, not encroaching on that personal autonomy, that it was hilarious. She was going around because we were set up in tables, and we had these questions that we're supposed to ask each other about so we can learn about each other's lives. And she'd go around each table, and she'd be like, um, so, hey, guys, you can, you can go ahead to the next question, or you can just stay on the question you're at. And I thought, <laughs> I thought how are we going to get anywhere if we just do whatever we want? If everyone just does what's right in their own eyes, and we never make, there's no action, there's no progress. We're just like, she so, has this crippling fear of offending anyone in the room. She can't even suggest they go to the next question. And that is in our culture, and that is in our church culture sometimes, you guys. 
that we believe, man, I should have, I, I reserve the right, Ben, Bucky, I reserve the right for total freedom, total autonomy. Christian friendship blows that autonomy apart, you guys. It blows it apart. Yes, Christian friendship means that we make claims on each other's lives. We say, I see this gifting in you and I know that you are not living in it. It says, look, you have this amazing gifting and the church is struggling because you're not using it in practical service. We lean into each other's lives. We make claims on each other's lives. And it's not always just the prophetic one who's got the voice and has to bring the hammer, as one of my friends likes to say. We can do that for one another. That is true Christian friendship. That is influence that will become the evidence. So here's some of the instruction about how. How do we move from autonomy to building into each other? So it says in verse 15. But practicing the truth in what? That's right, you're still with me. You're still, you're still alive and woke. We're gonna do it one more time. Practicing the truth in what? Love, yeah, we will in all things grow up into Christ who is the head. Today we're talking about the evidence of Christian friendship and the evidence really ultimately of our influence. This is a big one. This is a big one. To speak the truth in love. Once again, it's been abused. We like to say, oh man, that's just who I am. I just come across as tough. And you know, I'm just blunt. I love that word. I'm just so blunt and they can't handle it. But you know what I was doing? I was speaking the truth in love, so I'm clear. My conscience is clear, which is not cool. That's not cool. That's not, I think, what Paul is saying here. He's saying, and look at this whole text. Take this whole text, and what are the evidences that Paul's talking about? If there's only three, humor me for a second. If there's just three things that are evidence of our Christian friendship, and therefore our Christian influence, there's three things I read just from this passage. We're using our gifting. We're using our gifting. We're spending time with Jesus. We know his word and his will and his ways. We're spending time. We're becoming on the inside. That's a B value, not a do value. We're becoming more and more like him. That's an internal evidence, which is powerful. And how we give good feedback. The truth and love. How we give good and tough feedback. Or as John Stott says, we're truthing. We're truthing in love. Because that word, truth and love, it doesn't, it's speaking makes it sound like it's something we do in language. Literally, it's just the verb form of truth. If, if truth is a noun, you know, person, place, thing, or idea, truthing is what the original Greek word is trying to get at. We, tr- we are truthing in love. We are about that 24-7. Our posture as Christian friends is to lean into each other's life, loving feedback. Wow. If there's only three, that makes the list. There's only three, and one of them is loving feedback. You know where I'm going to go next, guys, but where do we rank ourselves on this? The survey continues. The self-assessment continues. Where do we rank ourselves? Because Christian friendship is based on feedback. Guys, shoot, I'm worried that we might be failing miserably at this if we can't bring a tough word and a challenging question and a word of encouragement out of love. That's always the starting place of why we're talking to someone in the first place. Truth in love, that's the origin of it. We're not afraid of interrupting their autonomy. We're not afraid of offending because we know that if they don't start stepping up in that gifting, if they don't start practicing that gifting, if they don't start spending time with Jesus, then they lose. They lose. And the flourishing community that's on a movement loses without speaking that word. In love, in encouragement, in grace, in mercy. And it's all over the Bible, you guys. Look at Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, this beautiful passage we also love to quote, by the way. It says in verse 5, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. 
Wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from the enemy. And our personal favorite, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. We love to quote that. How did you know you were supposed to marry that guy? Or how are you supposed to know you were marry that girl? Man, because iron sharpens iron, dude. I just knew iron sharpens iron. I'm just getting all sharpened up right now. And so I just, you know what? I love that and I want more of it. <laughs> it sounds like someone who's not yet gotten married and, and, and they just haven't figured it out yet. We love quoting that part. But what about the part that comes before it? Wounds from a sincere friend are better than kisses from an enemy? No, I'm opting for kisses. If it's me, I'm opting for kisses. We, we, have, we have missed this point huge, you guys. Are we welcoming and inviting wounds into our influence because it'll produce something in and through our hearts? The evidence of our influence is loving feedback, man. Loving feedback. We love someone enough to bring them that tough word because of what it will mean for their faith and their influence as we reproduce that in them. Band, you guys can come up as we look at verse 16. Look at verse 16 as we're talking about love. This is a perfect endpoint. This is how Paul caps off the whole conversation. This last idea from 16 undergirds and anchors the entire thing is built on verse 16. Are you ready for this? Are you guys ready for this? Are you guys okay? Sweet. Middle section is pumped and I'm pumped off their pumpedness. Okay, verse 16. From him, the whole body grows fitted and held together through every supporting ligament. As each one does its part, the body grows in what? The body grows in what? Love, man. You know, I would love to see the church grow. I would love to see the church grow. This church grow, like I mean numerically. That people would come back to church for the first time in a long time. People would come to church for the first time ever. Your nieces, your nephews, your family members, your in-laws, your friends, your roommates, that they'd be sitting next to you. I'd love to see the church grow in that way. And you know what I think is not going to make that happen? More amazing programs, more amazing events, more perfect music, more epic preaching, more really fancy marketing strategies. If I'm reading Paul, I have the answer on the screen. What's it going to be? The passage says that how will we grow? Through love. Through love. And I understand how trite that sounds. Oh, the answer was what, Ben? Oh, love? Oh, cool. It's so basic. It's not. It's not basic at all because I look at our evidence, you guys, and I want to challenge you with this question as we wind down. But listen to this, this line of questioning. Listen to this question right here. This line of questioning as you look at the evidence of your influence, as I look at the evidence of mine. And I think, oh yeah, love, great. Really original, Ben, that Paul talked about love. Look at these questions. If you really love that friend of yours, if you really love that friend, what is the word or the tough truth that you have been holding back giving them? If you really love that friend, what is that gifting that you know that they're not living in? They maybe just touched it or tasted it and they're at 5% or 25%, let alone you know, half. That's not the gospel I read when I see that Jesus says, I'll give you life and life to the full. There's no half speed. There's no just average. He doesn't settle for that. He makes claims on our life. He makes claims on our life. And we enter into a relationship with one another in love. And we say, you're so gifted. The church cannot be a functioning body. Paul's using this metaphor of the biological body. It's missing limbs. It's missing eyes. It's missing feet. It can't be on a movement if it's missing feet. 
We get to encourage each other into that question. What is that gifting they're not living into? If love is so basic and we love that friend, how come we haven't called them to that? Those greater depths and levels. If we really love Jesus, why haven't we spent time with him lately? We love Jesus. If, if his sacrifice, the price he paid on the cross is so near and so dear to us, when was the last time we sat and we just were present with him? We just had the chance to be. Remember that as a key piece of evidence. It's not just all this tangible production numbers. There is an internal evidence of our time when we are just are allowed to be with the Father that will produce an amazing harvest, that will produce amazing fruit in our lives. Ask those questions today. And then the world, like John says in, in John chapter 13, then the world will know. The world, we, the world will know who we belong to. What's the mark? By how we love one another. By how we love one another. That will be the mark. And the whole world will know. And that's my prayer. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I just thank you so much for this word uh, from your servant, Paul gifted apostle a gifted evangelist a a gifted man in in all these areas and we think how can we measure up God how could our influence even do anything that's even a fraction of that and yet Jesus I just pray that as people leave this room whether it's day one for them or they've been here for 20-30 years I just pray Lord that they would be reminded of the fact they're immensely gifted they have been supercharged up by your Holy Spirit the Spirit of God It's a gift to every believer inside us, living in every single one of us that empowers us with those gifts. Jesus, let people be encouraged with this word. They would know they have a contribution to make your church beautiful. It is not a couple of pastors. It is not just staff. It is together, Lord God, as a church. That from our time with you, being present with you, we will be sent. And the whole world would know who we belong to because of our love. In Jesus' name. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.